Welcome to America's Top Rebbitons. May this class be for Fuisha Lema, for Eliezer Raphael Le Benamuna, Leah Eliana Batamuda, and also for Peril Naomi by Panina Sarah. Please click the subscribe button to subscribe to us on the America's Top Rebbitons YouTube page, or click follow to follow us on your podcasting app so that you are the first to know when an inspiring new episode is posted. I'm so happy to have on today's show, Rebetzindina Schusterman. Rebetzindina is the founder of Chabad in Town, the in-town Jewish preschool, and the in-town Hebrew school in Atlanta, Georgia. Rebetzindina writes about parenting, Torah, and about Hasidic thought, and she also teaches classes for women. Thank you so much for being here. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. Thank you for having me. I am Dina. I, like you said, I'm on Shluchas in Atlanta, Georgia. Since the late 90s, I have eight children, Kenai Nahara, two grandchildren, two grandsons. And um, I am very passionate about education and parenting, learning from my own mistakes, and you know, just a lot of new science we have out there and new information. And I am also currently writing a book. Oh, that's exciting. Wow. Okay. Uh, did you want to say anything about the book yet or it's too early? Um, I mean, it's, it's a, it's really a work in progress and has taken me through my own journey of discovery because, you know, you can write things down on paper and then you have to really question like, why, what, how did that happen? So it's, it's been a deep dive. My husband said to me before I started writing about maybe three years ago, he's like, are you sure you're ready to do this? I was like, what? ready to do what? And, you know, it's been, it's been quite a journey. Definitely. I agree. When you write, it kind of brings up new things that you didn't know that you were going to have to deal with. So it really is a cathartic process, the writing. So, yes. And is it, um, is the book on the topic of parenting or is it on a different topic? No, it's, it's really, um, I take my, um, my parents were Shluchim in Northern California for 10 years in Berkeley. And it's kind of through the lens of the stories, their stories. And then, my stories. So it's like a memoir of sorts. It's called, um, it's called narrative nonfiction. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. That sounds very, very exciting. Well, today we're going to talk about one of the topics I know that you're very, very good at. I think it's called creative nonfiction. Sorry, just creative Creative nonfiction. Okay. I like it. Creativity is always good. I love it. So today we're going to be talking about about parenting, which is I've heard you give wonderful, wonderful lectures about parenting. And this is a topic I know that you know so much about. And I can't wait for for you to share your knowledge with others. So we're going to get to the heart of the matter of parenting today. And we all love our children and we want to be the best parents that we can be for them. But we don't always have the tools to do that. And our goal today is to give parents the tools they need to develop a close and loving relationship with their children that that will hopefully carry on through adulthood. So let's start at the beginning. Can you please talk to us about about connection versus disconnection when it comes to parenting and also give us some concrete strategies on developing a connected relationship with our children? Okay, that's a that's a big one. Um, yes. So connection is probably the foundation. It is the foundation of all relationships. And it is, are we relating or are we controlling? Like asking yourself that question each time that you are having an interaction with your child. Does this come from seeing where my child comes from, seeing what, you know, what they need, or is it about, I need to get something done. I need to move through this day. So I need to control the situation. So obviously controlling is much easier. It's much more efficient. Things happen smoother, but what 
ends up ha- and we think we've had we're really you know a good parent because everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing, but ultimately the um, the hidden kind of um, byproduct of controlling is that everything that ends up being built for a child is on the outside of them. And it's all about outside forces telling me what to do, showing me where to go, doing, you know, guiding me as opposed to the inner world of the child, which is how do I come to this from my own understanding and giving them those skills. So we're giving them a, we're giving them a set of skills, but it's more and more today, we understand that those are not even skills that are helpful in the end. They're not skills that are going to serve them well later because then they're in this world and then they're faced with a lot of anxiety because like I, I was always controlled. I was always told what to do. And now I am my own person and I have to make decisions, but I don't really know how to make them because I was always told. So let's talk about connecting. So connecting is about really seeing where your child's coming from, what will be best for them. Um, let's give, um, I'm trying to think of, um, I mean, there's so many examples, but I, I just want to say that um Connection is the basis because um, connection creates willingness in a child. So when your child is, um, is tantruming and you look at your child and you say, you were really hoping that, or you wish that. So you're getting there with the child, you're in their hopes and dreams. And as opposed to saying one more sound, or if I hear that again, or you need to be quieter, or this is not okay. So you're getting there in there with your child, you were hoping that, um, or it's really hard to hear that. So you're connecting is getting in there, in their story or side by side with them. You're, um, you're being with them in their situation. What that does for them is it allows them to go further into themselves because they don't have to fight you anymore, right? You're not the one that they have to push up against and they can sit with oh, I am sad about this. And they get to know, it, it puts them deeper inside of themselves. Wow, that's so powerful. I was just taking in everything that you said. It's so interesting because I never knew any of this growing up. You know, this is just so, this is so new to me, but it makes so much sense because when a kid is, is in some kind of emotional distress, whether they're having a, a temper tantrum or maybe they had a bad day or they're in some kind of turmoil, they really just need somebody to validate their feelings, to empathize with them and to really, really get them. I love what you said, like just get in there with them and just form that connection. And then you have an alliance with a child because they know that you get them and that you are on their side and it makes them more cooperative eventually. Right. And then when you say to them, you must be so upset or you were hoping that, you know, right. when they're, they're tantruming about what, or when they're older and they're, um, you know, they can't go out with a friend or you, you um, or they can't have, the 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 app that they wanted and you say to them you know you were really hoping that i mean they might if you do this enough they they become very they're on to you and they're like oh thanks ma you know they don't real but but you're but at the same time you're not you're it's kind of neutral because you haven't done anything damaging but it might not be so helpful in the moment but at least you keep the child in that moment which is i am upset that and because i'm upset i don't like this and then they just get to, they learn to sit with those feelings of upsetness and they learn to stay within themselves because the controlling thing, like I said before, it, it digresses from the whole internal experience. It makes it all about now the fight between me and mom, as opposed to what am I actually going through inside of myself? Wow. That's key. And, and it's think, very powerful. 
Yeah. And I, I think that this is, it's such a tiny change. And I mean, it's hard to do because we do want bedtime to run smoothly. So we bribe, we cajole, we don't always control, doesn't look like control actually, but we bribe and we um, cajole and we do all those things. But again, those are all on the outside of the child as opposed to being with the child in their experience. And I mean, like you said, this is nothing that we grew up with. This is nothing that any of us really I mean, maybe people understood it intuitively, but now we kind of understand it from a psychological point of view, but also we understand it from a spiritual point of view, because um, if you look around, we are not being, um, you know, I'll just bring in, you know, maybe a little spirituality here, um, Hasidus here. So um, the last discourse that the Lubavitcher Rebbe said he spoke about the, um, the pure olive oil. So how do you get olive oil from an olive? You've got to squeeze that olive and what do you get like a drop? But it's that squeezing, squeezing, squeezing to get to the inner essence of the olive. So the Rebbe talks about once upon a time, how did you get to the inner essence of a Jew? There was all this, um, um, there was all this outer squeezing going on. So you had to defend your Yiddishkeit from a, a, a from a tyrant, from Stalin in Russia, you had to stand up for your dishkait. Even America told you that you couldn't work on Shabbos, you had to work on Shabbos. So there was, um, you know, Nazi Germany, we don't even have to, you know, go there, but, or, or I'm sorry, we don't have to illustrate that. We know what that is. So there was all this squeezing on a Jew that was coming from the outside. And living in America, all these, when the Rebbe said it, I don't know if it was 60 years that we lived in freedom in America and you look around and it looks so easy, right? Like what, what's squeezing us, so to speak, to, put, to, to get out the essence, the olive oil. So an olive is great on its own, but we wanna to get to the essence. So the Rebbe said that it's this generation, the squeezing comes from within. So that's why it's so important for our children to know who they are from within and give them these tools because that's how they're going to get to their essence is by, and so we have to give them tools to learn about who they are inside. And that comes through connection. Um, science tells us that if you want willingness, you need to have connection. So I am not, you know, I can do something for somebody out of fear. That's the old model that's squeezing from outside, but I can also do something for somebody out of love. The higher level is to do it out of love. Our children if we want willingness from our children, we have to be connected to them. There needs to be that love. The other cool thing about connection is that connections outside of the brain create connections inside of the brain, and that actually makes our children smarter. So we are creating emotionally and just smarter, emotionally smarter and smarter just on a very simple level. We are creating more brain power by connecting with our children. So that's amazing. That's amazing. I'm glad that you thought of, that you brought up brain power because the next question I wanted to ask you has to do with thoughts with the brain. Um, it's a very interesting concept. It's about how our own thoughts affect others around us. And I'm really, really just talking about our own thoughts right now, not even our speech or our actions. I know that if we have positive thoughts and feelings toward ourselves or toward our children, just having those thoughts in and of themselves has a positive effect on our children. So can you please talk to us about how the positive intent of our thoughts affects those around us? Okay, so you're, you're saying this as a statement because probably you know, you've read about it and it's already scientifically accepted that our thoughts create, can create certain realities. I know there's, um, there's been research done where they gave um, non-piano playing people 
the ability to play piano. They taught them some lessons and then half the group, they told them to practice on an actual piano and half the group, they told them to practice in their minds. And when they came back together, the ones who practiced in their minds were just as good at practicing the piano as the ones that were practicing with an actual piano, which kind of flies in the face of, um, you know, that muscle memory and doing something, which is, which is, you know, we're just learning how powerful the brain is in the, in these last few decades. So thoughts, as, as you mentioned just before, is part of um, our, the, in, in Tanya, the altar calls it the, um, the levushim, they're the clothing of our soul, our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. So thoughts is the one most internal to us, right? It's the deepest one inside of us. And it's the one only we know about. So if it is if it is one of the powers of our soul, then it has to be powerful, okay? Um, there's actually a story of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and when he was in Riga and on Shmini Atzeres and he was talking to some of the newly released, this was, I guess, post-World War I, during communism, newly released Bahram who had left the Soviet Union and were now in Riga with him. The, the Rebbe had been um, ex- exiled from Russia. And he spoke to them. I actually, I want to maybe read the words here for, um, for the audience. Oh, um, thoughts are powerful. Not only is thought the first and innermost of the three garments of the soul to which thought is united, thinking actually produces results that ex- can extend into the realm of action. Concentrating on a good thought concerning another is in itself an act. Although is in it, it is an act only in the context of the world of thought, it still needs to pass through the succeeding stages of speech and practical action. So, you know, okay, so what's the practical action? And then the Rebbe continued, thought knows no bounds. No partition can stand in its way and at all times it reaches its required destination. So one of those present who was kind of like, you know, wondering about this, um, who had recently reached Riga from Russia, he says, but, but what benefit does that the other party have from that? And the Rebbe responds, he benefits in rich measure. After a long pause, the Rebbe turned to the questioner and, questioner and asked, and where were you last, Sukkis? Intimating that I was thinking about you last, Sukkis, and now you're here. So, um, you know, even in um, taking it back to the science, even in conscious discipline, we're taught... Um, which is my modality of most of what I've learned about parenting and, and, and science is that we're, we're taught to have, um, to have positive intent, like you said, and to always assume, you know, we're making things up about kids anyway, right? We have no idea what's going on in their heads. We have no idea why they hit somebody, why they scratch, why they're refusing us. We're making things up anyway. So we might as well make up good things. Why do we might as well make up good things? Because of this concept of positive intent leads to positive behavior because we are creating those, those um, neural pathways of thinking positively. First of all, just on a practical level, if you're always thinking positively about your child, your child is gonna turn around and think positively about their friend. They'll turn around. We're just creating more goodness in the world and maybe people are actually gonna be acting up to what we expect of them. So again, if we're making things up about people from a practical perspective, let's make up positive things about them. But from a, you know, maybe a spiritual psycho, psycho-spiritual perspective, it's actually, it's that energy you're giving to your child of positivity, which somehow, as the Rebbe was saying, moves them in that direction. So um, it's hard work. I know that um, 
I'm constantly, you know, thinking about this when I want to, um, let's say, give a child of mine feedback about something they did or really point something out to them, which I'm kind of conditioned to want to do. And then I just work really hard at saying, this is my moment to just have positive thoughts about this, that my child did this. This is my moment to just think they did it. And maybe I'm even talking about older children, you know, not children who are grabbing toys anymore, but children who sometimes make choices that we're not always comfortable with or said something that we, we you know, or, or you get feedback and you're like, okay, positive intent here. My child did this for a good reason. They're going to get over this. It's really, really powerful. If not just for, you know, my own well-being and my own, um, you know, calm and being able to relate that child and see them for the good, because then all my interactions are going to be more positive with that child. Wow. That's incredible. And yes, and then you'd be operating from a more positive uh, frame of mind in general. And then you're able to be positive about other people too, in addition to your child. And really, like you said, it really creates a good vibe all around. Yes. It's amazing. Good vibes only. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, we, we also need to learn how to consciously manage our own thoughts and emotions so that we can teach our children to do the same. And I understand that there are three brain states that are likely to produce certain behaviors in other people and in ourselves. And the three brain states help us to increase our own self-awareness so that we can respond consciously to the needs of that moment. So can you please talk to us about these three brain states and how we can use them to be effective parents? Okay, so... Um... Our brain states are what's naturally going on in our brain. And now that they've had so much technology, they're able to see this with, you know, um, putting on those, what are they called? Um, the, not, not EKG. The, the receptors to be able to see this on a screen. Yes. So the first, the first part of our brain is called the reptilian brain. It's that, um, it's that, that initial brain of ours, um, the amygdala, I think it's called, I don't have this in front of me right now, but I think it's the amygdala and it is the brain that says, um, am I safe? Okay. That's the brain telling us, and that's the brain of fight or flight, freeze or fawn. So when a child feels threatened, and this can be because their Cheerio fell on the floor. Okay. Based on how they're responded to from their threatening at a very, very young age, from birth, okay, they, their food is not there. They're, they're, they wake up middle of the night and mommy's not there. That's gonna be their natural, they're gonna develop that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And that's really which one they develop or a mixture is based also on how our souls come to us. Like we have a personality built in that Hashem gave to our souls. We have like a, um, a pre-programming. Um, the next brain is the, um, the brain that says, it's the emotional brain. It says, am I loved? So in, this is the brain of connection. Like what's going on for me here? Like, is this person loving me? Um, It's also, it's much more visceral, but it's, it's a little bit more developed. Um, And based on the fight or flight freeze, based on the, am I safe? They'll be able to perceive whether they're loved. If they're safe, they feel loved. Um, And the next brain is the prefrontal cortex. And that's where we have executive decision-making. Interestingly enough, that brain does not develop until the early twenties. It is also the seat of, you know, our brain is the seat of our nephishal kiss, our godly soul, which we know from Torah doesn't come into our body till we're 12 and 13. So it kind of all, you know, and that's the brain that allows us to make meaning, to learn lessons. Like, what can I learn from this? A child, if you don't give them their red sippy cup with the blue lid, and they're screaming for the red sippy cup and the blue lid, they don't feel safe, they don't feel loved, you're not gonna tell them, 
It doesn't matter what color sippy cup you have. It's all a cup. You could just drink out of it. None of that matters to the child. They don't feel safe if they don't have their sippy cup for whatever reason, we don't know, but that they can't make any reasoning out of that. A, because they're not supposed to, Hashem didn't develop their brain yet that way. B, even adults cannot be in two, brain, two parts of their brain at the same time. So if I'm in my fear brain, I cannot be in my executive function thinking brain. And this is so, so important because um, listen to your own language. I'm so worried. I'm so scared. All of that means that anything, you're, anything that comes after that sentence, I'm so worried that my kids won't have friends. So I am buying them lots of fancy things. So they'll be more popular is not a rational or helpful decision making skill. So if you are, you are not going to be making good choices from a place of fear because your fear brain doesn't think like that. doesn't think rationally. Um, so I just feel like this is so such a, such an important awareness for parents, for humans, for everybody. Where am I coming from? If I'm coming from a place of fear or my emotions, um, then I'm just not making the best choices for me, for my family. Right. It's a hundred percent. We it's, and it's very good to really take the time to have an awareness of what, what place am I, am I coming from? Which part of the brain am I coming from? Am I coming from that fear based place? Because then forget it, that none of the decisions I'm going to be making are logical or even helpful to myself or to my children. So we really have to take stock of ourselves because a lot of times we, we, place so many demands on our children and we expect them to do something that we're not even doing. We expect them to be the rational ones and to just, you know, just take charge and just to do what they're supposed to do when we're not able to do it ourselves because we're stuck in that fear-based brain. Right. And I just, uh, just to add to that is that um, what puts us in fear? So what puts us in fear is all of our old programming and things that happened to us as a child. So we also society around us put fears, you know, we have the, the shidduch crisis or we have the yeshiva crisis or the camp crisis or all these, you know, uh, and listen to the wording I'm saying it's a crisis, right? So there's all this fear <laughs> around it. Um, there's keeping up with the Jones, there's having to look a certain way. So all of this is talk about relating versus controlling. None of this is relating. None of this is actually, um, dealing with the human experience on the ground. It's like these lofty ideas and we have all of this that shoulds and especially in our communities, there's a lot of demand for, um, for very high level living, which is great, you know, but we have to remember that there's an ideal and then there's the actual life of it. Like, where are we living? Um, I, I like to think of it as, um, Ariel from um, oh, the Little, Little Mermaid, Mermaid. and yeah. she has this song like "I want to live where the people live," you know. Like, so we can have all these lofty ideas and and this moral high ground that is comes to us from the Torah, which is very real. But at the same time, we have to remember that Hashem put us in this world to struggle and to have a real life. So we have to hold both of those at the same time. So the the fear is that we're supposed to have arrived, but in reality, we could be conscious of like, no, I'm a person, I'm struggling. I'm not necessarily arrived there. It's not helpful for me to be thinking about these things in such absolute terms. Let me, let me move this away and think like, what's more practical in this moment? What is more real in, in what is actually happening? 
Um, so that's one way to kind of talk yourself out of it. Like what is really going on here? And what is really going on here? The awareness is maybe it's not the community. Maybe it's not the moral high ground. Maybe it's just me and my personal life and triggers. And, and, you know, that word triggers is like blah, blah, but it's, it's a real, it's a real thing. Like, why am I so affected? Why is this scaring me? Is it because of the moral high ground or is it because of my own personal story? And in order for us to be in the brain state that we want to be in for our children, which is in our adult brain, our prefrontal cortex, we need to be regulated. Our, our own system as an adult needs to be calm. Our nervous system needs to be present. We need to know, we have to have the awareness. It doesn't mean that we're not gonna get scared and it doesn't mean that we're not gonna be worried, but we can move ourselves through that if we're regulated. So we can go from that fear, that initial, oh, okay, I feel that, um, that initial fear of um, emotion to the thought process. And then we can then have a real feeling around it, which is, okay, this is what I'm, this is my emotion that, that just naturally came up. We don't even know where it came from. Then we can think about it and then we can act on it in a more um, rational way. And this is a lot of self-work and a lot of inner work. And again, that brings us back to the beginning is in order to be able to do this inner work, we have to be okay with ourselves. And however you get that way, whether it's with a therapist, a, a, a mashpia, a friend, you know, there's so many ways to get there, but we all need help. I guess what I want to say. It's a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's a lot of coming to terms with our own stuff and our own triggers. And I love what you said about triggers because they are, they're really, really real. And they, you know, a trigger is a gift. I learned very recently that a trigger is a gift. It means dig here. It means this is where the healing can take place. And um, there's a lot to be uncovered from our triggers. I don't think we should be afraid of them. I think we should really kind of look into them and then find out what's really bothering us. And then we can really deal with that issue because the emotional regulation is important. And also part of that is the is the okayness. It's being okay with being human and being okay with your kids being human, meaning you're not going to be perfect all the time. Your kids are not going to be perfect all the time. And it's okay. And the situation that whatever's happening with the Cheerio, with the cop, or even with older kids with, with, with bad decisions or, you know, uninformed decisions, that's okay too. It's, we're all going through this human learning experience. I think it's really important to realize that and just to understand it and to be okay with it and not to go into fear mode because everything isn't hundred percent correct all the time. Yeah. I just, I just want to kind of clarify something. And I hear this a lot. You said, we're not going to be perfect all the time. I want to just maybe um, offer this. We're not going to be perfect ever, ever. That's You're right. <laughs> Thank you. We for are going to make some really great decisions and we're going to feel really proud of ourselves and we're going to have some great parenting moments, but we're not going to be perfect. And um, it, it just leave perfection to Hashem. I think it's, I'm just on this, um, this like, I don't know what, it, what it's called. I would just love if we would even stop using the word perfect we would be so much happier. And I think it all, like I also was thinking when you were talking, it made me think about awareness. Like it all starts with awareness, self-awareness, yes. even awareness to the point that you get a phone call and the phone call is that um, let you have a child, I have a children in Shaduchim. The family said, no. Okay, you go about your day. Okay, people say no. You know, every rejection is Hashem's protection. Fine. And you go about your day and then you deal with this kid and this kid, um, you know, has lice and you have to make Shabbos um, for 10 extra guests and all these things. But you never stopped to that initial phone call gave you a stomachache. You never stopped to consider that you're in this crazy mood and you're snapping at everyone from that initial phone call that you thought well, you were okay with. And 
you might be okay with, but you have to acknowledge it. You have to have that awareness like, ooh, that really hurt my stomach. It hurt my feelings. It made me sad for that time. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not like a, a, a navel gazing, you know, sit down and, and, and now drink your tea and light candles. No, it's just that little moment of saying, oh, that was really an uncomfortable phone call. I didn't like it. And now I can trace, because we walk around with these tight throats and these stomach aches and headaches, like a whole day without noticing what's going on. But when you're more regulated and you have awareness, you can really tap into that. And then you can respond from a place of awareness and regulation and less triggers because the trigger might just be that you were rejected. And that can be very, very deep, but not necessarily you have to deal with all that. You just have to deal with what is now, which is that didn't feel good. Take a moment. I love that. I love that. So powerful and so important and so key and so doable. Just take that moment. I just, I love that. Um, And I also want to bring up another thing that's really, really important in parenting. Um, empathetic listening. I mean, empathetic listening is very powerful concept when it comes to parenting. And I want to see if you could please tell us exactly what empathetic listening is and how we could use it in communicating with our children. Okay. So there's a difference between knowing what it is like intellectually and being able to do it emotionally. And it's huge, especially if you um, were not raised with this. I think that um, a lot of us were raised with, um, this notion of like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this. You know better. We know better. It's not so difficult. Um, I was able to, to work through my issues and, and get through adversity. And, and I don't, you know, what, what I've realized lately is that nobody actually told us that nobody actually told us like, you don't have it so bad, you American brats. Nobody told us that, but we did get, we personally, I learned that for myself because I saw grandparents who had been through horrors and they were functional and they got it done and they moved forward and they were exalted for that, which they should be. But what that told me was that there's really no room for um, anyone's small problems. It kind of took their, their thriving and their successful living post-Holocaust, post-Stalin, a little bit took away my empathy if that makes sense. Yes, it does make sense. Okay. So I think all of us have a little, and maybe if anyone relates to this, think about it. We don't have all the appropriate amount of empathy, maybe because of the great people whose shoulders that we stand on. So they, they gave us a great example, but it's not an excuse for us not to have empathy. So digging back into learning, finding my empathy, because as a young child, it was, I was very empathetic and I, and I, I kind of had to shut that down that part of myself because the raw emotion was so hard for me to, to really process is, um, so again, that's like a real issue to deal with. It's not just, you're not dealing with this like white chalkboard or, or white, white, whiteboard and saying, okay, here are the steps. There's, there's background here. So the background is when your child wants that sippy cup, you're like, really, you know? as opposed to, this is the world they know. This is all they know. They don't know about my grandparents. They don't know any, they don't know about the Ukraine, what's going on now. They just know about their little world and that's okay. And the paradox is, is that the more you get into the, what I've learned, I don't, I don't know that I'm great at practicing this, I'm learning, is that if you could trust the process and get into the nitty gritty, the paradox is that you actually, just it just gets 
they can move on the children. It, they're holding on to all of these little things is because it becomes again, like that fight, they have to fight. They don't necessarily care. We made it into a bigger deal by minimizing it. That's the irony is that by minimizing their pain, we make their pain into a bitter, bigger deal. If we can sit with them with their pain and we can, um, you know, as Brene Brown said, we could sit with the lights off with them, show them that it's okay, the dark. Then later we can help them flip the light on if they want to go into the light, but really just acknowledging it, it, um, it paradoxically makes it easier for them to not focus on all these little nitty gritty things and have that resilience to get through things. Does that make sense? A lot of sense. I love that. Yes, because when you're kind of negating their feelings and kind of like, oh, whatever, doesn't matter. Like you're you're negating them. You know, they feel like you don't get me. You, you what I have to say is isn't important. My world is important. My feelings aren't important. So they want to fight for that. Yes, I am important. And then you end up butting heads. Right. And it right. It becomes like a, a like I have to fight for my existence yes. as opposed to just what it is, which is like you were hoping that I would give you this or you were hoping that this would work out for you. That's it. It's like really the empathy is, is just the most um, getting in there and not, um, not turning on the light for your child, letting them sit in the darkness, showing them it's okay, being okay internally with it. Now, when they're younger, this is much easier if you're, if you're practicing it. I mean, I didn't always know that. And that, you know, knowing that, um, that as kids get older, what I find to be the challenge is it's not so hard to be with them with their feelings, but what ends up being very hard in the listening and the empathy is when they're saying things that sound ridiculous. Like they're say they have these truths and you just want to correct all their truths because they're not true what they're saying, you know, <laughs> unequivocally not true, but it's, it's still important to let them have that opinion, to let them say these things. And maybe another time you want to talk, you want to go back to it, you know, going back to things as parents is always more helpful. It's more work on our part because we have to remember to go back to it. That's why people don't naturally want to do that. But um, it's, it's sitting with them, with their feelings, knowing that feelings won't kill us. We didn't always know. I didn't always know that. I really thought feelings could kill you actually. Um, but um, you know, I don't know if I knew that consciously, but that's what we felt like, you know, we also heard things like you're going to kill your mother. You're going to kill your grandmother. You know, <laughs> we did hear, we did hear things like that. So, true. um, so you can't kill anyone. Only Hashem can kill people. <laughs> so, um, so it's, it's really, really being able to be okay with your child tantruming about something stupid and be okay with your child being sad about something that's really real and you want to fix for them. And, and, and it might feel like you're crawling out of your skin while you're sitting there with your child. Actually, if you're crawling out of your skin, you're probably doing it right. Um, but, but just holding strong to that. And again, it goes back to regulation because if you're not regulated, you can't do it. No, because it takes a lot. It takes a lot of presence of mind. And it takes a lot of recognizing that you're you and they're them and that you're differentiated. You're, you're two different people and just giving them that space to be and believe what they believe and to be who they are. That's hard as a parent. Very. Yeah. Yes. So this is interesting because it leads me to the next question, because 
as we're raising our children, we do our best to instill our values in them. And sometimes though, even with our best intentions, our children turn out differently than we intended. And this can be very, very disappointing to many parents. So what can you say to parents who are feeling hurt or angry or even betrayed about the choices that their children are making? And maybe what is the proper perspective that parents should have in this type of situation? So I, you know, I, I don't really think I can speak from so much experience because I don't really have any big drama in this arena. Hopefully I won't have eight children. They're not all grown yet. But um, some of the intellectual things I could offer is, first of all, there's, there are people out there that are doing this and it is unbelievable. There's a world out there of people who are um, loving and accepting and embracing their children who are on a different path than them and watching them is just like so incredibly inspiring. So I, I can see that it is real and it's done and they're getting chizuk. And I, I, I like to listen to those kind of lectures because it helps me even for my dumb, you know, needs that I thought I needed for my children and they're not living up to, you know, maybe how they run a household or maybe how they're dressing or, you know, things that are really not that important. Um, so so it is that strength is out there. That meaning is out there. Um, I, I love the, I, I think I heard this first from Rebbe Shea's Taub that um, Hashem, ha, if you notice, Hashem has no grandchildren. He only has children. So after Bar and Bas Mitzvah, really your child's relationship is directly with Hashem. It's not funneled through you. You don't have control over it. It's not even your responsibility anymore. You've given them what you need to give them. And they are there to make their own choices and to learn on their own. And that's very precious to Hashem, actually. Um, you know, Hashem, what Hashem is, is, um, is, is getting from us, what Hashem is judging us by or, or how Hashem is accepting us is based on our effort. And we don't know the truth. I mean, I, I guess when parents see their children struggling, if they can get out of their fair brain and they can get into their thinking brain, they can probably say, like, they probably know their child's struggle. And if they just look at their struggle and say, wow, this child with this struggle is even on this path, even though it's not my path, they're probably awed by their children, I would imagine. But um, if they're in their fear brain, which is it was supposed to be this way and, and all of the shoulds, then they can't really um, get to that place of love and connection. Wow. That's powerful. That is key. That is very, very key. And and going back to the being in the, the place of connection, that's where it all is. That's where the work is. That's where the parenting work. That's where it takes place because it take, can't take place outside of that connection context. Yeah. So. It's amazing. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Rebbe and Dina, for being on our show today. And we really enjoyed having you here. We learned so much. And may all of our learning today be for Rafu Shalema, for Eliezer Raphael Lebanamuna, Leah Eliana Banamuna, and also for Peril Naomi Bat Panina Sarah. Thank you so, so much. Thank you.